The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Adapting Our Strategies for Decision-Making in Testing and Treatment of Ret-Altered Lung and Thyroid Cancers, a Personalized Learning Journey. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ANR 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to this activity titled Adapting Our Strategies for Decision-Making in Testing and Treatment of Ret-Altered Lung and Thyroid Cancers, a Personalized Learning Journey. I am Lori Wirth. I'm an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and I'm the Medical Director of the Center for Head and Neck Cancers at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And um, Ben, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Laurie. Um, my name is Ben Solomon. I'm a medical oncologist and the head of the Lung Medical Oncology Service at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, Australia. So our learning goals for today are as follows. Firstly, to improve your ability to implement biomarker testing for detection of RET alterations in lung and thyroid cancer based on the latest recommendations. Secondly, to augment your awareness and understanding of the evidence supporting the use of RET inhibitors in RET-altered lung cancer and thyroid cancer. Thirdly, to enhance your skills in integrating biomarker-guided targeted therapy using RET inhibitors and incorporating these into the treatment plans of patients with RET-altered lung or thyroid cancer. And finally, to offer guidance on how to better collaborate with your colleagues as well as educating and engage patients with red-altered lung and thyroid cancer. If you haven't already watched the introduction, which contains helpful information about this question-based, customizable, adaptive learning activity, please do so now. So in this first module, we'll talk about why red alterations are important and how to test for them to guide treatment decisions for patients. So RET codes for a receptor tyrosine kinase. It's expressed normally in a wide spectrum of tissues. Uh, when it uh, uh, heterodimerizes with the ligand co-receptor complex, RET is autophosphorylated and activated, leads to signaling through various pathways, including the ras raf map kinase pathway. RET plays a key role in organ development and tissue homeostasis. RET can be aberrantly activated by mutations and chromosomal rearrangements or fusions, both of which have been linked to the process of oncogenesis in different tumor types. So as we just heard from Dr. Wirth, in cancer, there are two main ways that RET can be activated. Firstly, by mutations. And these um, are most commonly seen in medullary thyroid cancer, which occur in about 60% of sporadic tumors and also in the majority of hereditary medullary thyroid cancers. And the most common mutation we see is the M918T. RET can also be activated by fusions. And these fusions can be seen at low frequency across a broad range of tumors, but are most commonly seen in thyroid cancers, where they can occur in 10 to 20% of non-medullary thyroid cancers and in about 1% or 2% of non-small cell lung cancers. And the most common fusion that we see in lung cancers is the KIF-5B RET um, fusion. And in thyroid cancers, the CCDC6 and the NCOA4 fusions are most commonly observed. So 
Why is identifying uh, red alterations in patients with cancers important? It's uh, because we have new drugs that are now available uh, that directly inhibit the red kinases that are activated in these subsets of cancers. The uh, uh, treatment landscape really has evolved. Previously, we had in our arsenal multi-kinase inhibitors that had some anti-RET activity, but other kinase activity as well, such as VEGFR uh, uh, inhibition. Now, however, we have two drugs, namely selpercatinib and pralcetinib, that have been studied in clinical trials, leading to uh, approvals uh, by healthcare authorities around the world for uh, the treatment of RET-altered cancers. And we see a very similar situation in lung cancer, as we'll um, as we'll explore in the um, in the coming modules. RET inhibitors have um, profound activity in in lung cancer as they do in thyroid cancer. And as we know, the key to personalized medicine is ensuring that patients get the right drug, get, uh, right uh, the right patients get the right drug at the right time. And uh, this um, this is absolutely the case for RET inhibitors in lung cancer, uh, with um, significant efficacy seen with RET inhibitors. But we but an important aspect about this is the testing to make sure that um, patients with RET alterations are identified. And as we'll see in the next slide, we have a long way to go with RET testing. Although guidelines in lung cancer recommend that all patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer get tested with broad-range molecular testing, we know that in the real world this is not the case. In, um, in, in the US and in countries around the world, in, in um, data suggests that fewer than 50% of patients get appropriate testing and get and uh, get directed to targeted therapy. Shown on this slide are data from um, an ISLC survey um, from um, with over 2,000 uh, responses um, from 102 countries, and we see common themes across across the globe in A <coughs> Asia, Europe. Um, the US and the rest of the world, where there are barriers, significant barriers to molecular testing. And these barriers include, include awareness of the need to test, access to testing, delays in um, uh, turnaround time, quality of testing, and cost of testing. And these results um, and these, these multiple factors really are barriers that we as a community need to overcome. You know, I think I would just add here in terms of in the thyroid cancer space, right now, I think we're probably even farther behind. We don't even have good data available to show um, to examining the rate of testing for patients with advanced thyroid cancer who are in need of systemic therapy. So I would hazard a guess that if uh, approximately 50% of lung cancer patients might not be getting tested appropriately. It's probably even a greater percentage of thyroid cancer patients who aren't getting tested. Um, thanks, Laurie. And that's <clears throat> such a such an important gap that we need to overcome because um, appropriate molecular testing in thyroid cancer and lung cancer is critical to optimize care. Not only does it provide insights into the biology of a patient's disease and allow for prognostic information, but it's critical because it really guides 
therapy and directs patients to optimal therapy, in which in this case is treatment with the targeted agent directed at RET. And as we'll explore shortly, the type of testing matters. There are different forms of testing we can do. We can do testing in tissue. We can also do testing in um, plasma, so-called liquid biopsies. And there are different methodologies, single gene versus multi multiplex or next generation sequencing and DNA-based sequencing compared to RNA-based sequencing. So um, as we've mentioned, there are two uh, different basic mechanisms that will activate the RET kinase in oncology. Uh, one is the structural variant of a RET gene rearrangement, uh, uh, which are, can also be referred to as translocations or fusions. Um, and then we also see uh, generally in medullary thyroid cancer, single nucleotide variations or point mutations, though there can also sometimes be insertions and deletions that are seen in medullary thyroid cancer in RET. Now, the testing platforms may um, not evaluate all of the um, alterations optimally, and so we're going to discuss in detail uh, some of the various uh, methods for testing all of our patients as optimally as possible. And talking a bit more about the different methodologies that are um, available, there are multiple methods for testing for both mutations and fusions. Um, these methods are list, uh, include immunohistochemistry, FISH, PCR, and next-generation sequencing, which may be DNA-based <coughs> or RNA-based. Now, each of these methodologies have different um, advantages and disadvantages. Immunohistochemistry, whilst cheap and widely available, um, does su suffer from significant limitations and is not a recommended method to detect either fusions or um, mutations. Fish, on the other hand, whilst generally available, can be expensive. Um, there can be issues related to um, false negativity. It's highly technically dependent on things such as tissue fixation. Um, and um, where a positive FISH result um, is, is a definite indication of the presence of a, um, of a fusion, but a negative uh, result um, may not always be helpful. PCR is another methodology which is generally available and cheap, uh, but it is limited to the detection of um, uh, specific fusion partners and is not um, an particularly in non-small cell lung cancer, where we're keen to look for multiple different oncogenic drivers, is not, um, uh, not generally a recommended test. On the other hand, next-generation sequencing um, uh, does have many advantages in this setting. It can look for multiple, multiple different oncogenes, including RET, and um, can be very sensitive, particularly if RNA-based next-generation sequencing is used. Um, uh, we know that DNA sequencing has limitations, particularly in the detection of fusions, and this can be overcome with the use of RNA-based uh, methodology. So the optimal method um, uh, uh, is uh, RNA and DNA-based uh, next-generation sequencing approach. 
You know, one brief thing that I would add is that in NGS testing, we often get additional prognostic information um, beyond identifying uh, the driver alteration. Um, commutations, for example, can be very informative. For example, in thyroid cancer, TERP promoter mutations generally correspond with slightly more aggressive disease. And I know that that's seen in, uh, in lung cancer as well. Yeah, absolutely, Laurie. And uh, just like in lung cancer, you, you may identify other mutations such as BRAF mutations, uh, which are also therapeutically actionable. Exactly. Now, the liquid biopsy is is really uh, quite appealing um, in terms of identifying actionable driver alterations for patients uh, with cancer. Um, it's a simple blood draw for patients. Um, so the convenience factor is really quite significant. Um, however, there are limitations as well. Um, one of the, uh, there is a fast turnaround time in general for liquid biopsies, um, and it can be a faster turnaround time than NGS testing. Uh, the sensitivity can be good um, in, in some uh, cases, um, but not in all cases. Um, for example, the sensitivity is lower um, um, in tumors that don't sh have high cell uh, shedding in the blood, such as with thyroid cancers. Um, the sensitivity is also not quite so good um, in detecting fusions um, rather than point mutations. Um, so that certainly is one of the limitations of liquid biopsies or CTDNA testing. Um, the, the specificity is excellent um, if a driver alteration, alteration is identified. Um, however, um, if a targetable driver alteration is not identified, um, it could be um, uh, uh, still present uh, if tissue NGS testing is done. The cost is variable. Uh, I think it depends in part uh, the uh, region of the world um, where uh, uh, testing is done and whether it might be covered uh, by insurers in, in the U.S., for example, um, by, or by other payers uh, in other parts of the world. Um, uh, and one of the limitations uh, related to cost is if the uh, SCTDNA testing um, is not informative, then um, it, in some uh, centers, tissue NGS testing will then be ordered. And so then uh, two different molecular testing platforms are utilized with that approach, and that can really be quite expensive. So we do have some current guidelines, um, both for lung cancer and thyroid cancer testing for RET uh, provided by the NCCN. Um, to summarize the guidelines um, in, in, from the lung cancer perspective, they indicate that FISH um, methodology can be uh, deployed, but highlight that it may under-detect some fusions. Targeted real-time PCR assays can be used, but they're also unlikely to detect fusions with novel partners. And really, next-generation sequencing-based methodology is the recommended approach as it has a high specificity and an RNA-based NGS is preferable to a DNA-based NGS for fusion detection. 
Now, the NCCN guidelines are somewhat different for thyroid cancers. Um, molecular diagnostics are indicated um, for patients with advanced thyroid cancer who are in need of systemic therapy because, of course, many patients with thyroid cancer will simply have tumor localized to the thyroid gland, have surgery, plus or minus radioactive iodine, and never need any other systemic therapy. So that's very different than the lung cancer setting. But for patients with advanced follicular-derived thyroid cancers, such as papillary thyroid cancer, follicular thyroid cancer, or even anaplastic thyroid cancer, um, when a systemic therapy is anticipated as being necessary in that patient's journey, um, molecular testing is recommended um, for treatment uh, decision-making. And this testing should include testing for RET gene fusions um, in these cancers. Now, for patients with medullary thyroid cancer, uh, for whom systemic therapy is um, anticipated, um, identifying RET mutations is critically important. In medullary thyroid cancer, uh, uh, RET uh, gene testing is somewhat complicated because patients with medullary thyroid carcinoma may have hereditary disease, and all patients who are diagnosed with medullary thyroid cancer should have germline RET gene testing in order to determine whether or not they have hereditary disease, um, so, uh, either MEN2A or MEN2B, which not only affects that patient's treatment, but also um, can affect um, the patient's first-degree family members. If patients um, are germline RET negative, however, and need systemic therapy, then they should undergo somatic testing of the tumor uh, in order to detect uh, somatic rec mutations uh, that may be present in RET germline wild-type patients with medullary thyroid cancer. And we also have um, an algorithm um, for, uh, uh, for, uh, for testing that ESMO has, has proposed. And the algorithm um, in the context of lung cancer recommends initially testing with uh, that's tissue-based with uh, next-generation sequencing. Now, if tissue is not available, a liquid biopsy is also indicated as a, a appropriate method for, um, for testing. Now, if RET fusions are detected on either assay, the recommendation is to progress to a treatment with a RET inhibitor. If it's, um, if it's not detected, um, then um, uh, treatment with, with standard therapy. Um, if next-generation sequencing is not available, then FISH or RT-PCR may be used. Now, the guidelines also do extend to um, thyroid cancer, Laurie. Yeah, so for the ESMO guidelines for the follicular-derived thyroid cancers, this same algorithm applies um, where um, uh, NGS testing of the uh, uh, tissue sample is recommended with the same uh, approach to identifying um, uh, tumors that harbor red, al uh, red alterations or red fusions um, in whom uh, a rest-specific therapy would be indicated. Um, and again, I would um, highlight the fact that liquid biopsies really um, are not as uh, sensitive for patients with thyroid cancer in general uh, uh, for uh, detecting uh, the presence of RET fusions or even RET mutations. Um, so while it's incorporated in the ESMO guidelines, I'm not sure really uh, if liquid biopsies in thyroid cancer patients are ready for prime time. 
One other thing that I would say that's a little bit unique to thyroid cancer is that many patients can be uh, diagnosed and, and, and undergo their um, initial treatment for thyroid cancer a number of years prior to the development of progressive metastatic disease when other systemic therapy is, is necessary. And because these are driver alterations, um, the um, uh, tissue from the patient's original surgery can often be used if it's not too old for NGS testing. Um, so we don't necessarily have to do uh, a new biopsy um, at the time of, of uh, prior to initiating systemic therapy in patients with thyroid cancer if the original uh, cancer specimen is available for testing. There may be other clinical reasons, however, to do a biopsy. Now, with medullary thyroid cancer, the, there um, are specific ESMO recommendations and, and, and an algorithm for identifying patients who harbor RET mutations. Um, the um, guidelines um, start with germline RET testing for every patient who has been diagnosed with medullary thyroid cancer. Um, if a patient is found to be RET germline positive, um, they should indeed undergo uh, genetic counseling um, because of the implications for um, uh, their own um, uh, health and harboring um, other uh, other tumors that are associated with MEN2A and MEN2B, but also because of their first-degree family members who really should be notified of the potential for harboring a germline ret mutation themselves. Um, in those patients that are germline ret negative, um, when patients with medullary thyroid cancer uh, uh, do need to have systemic therapy, um, um, tissue testing with NGS testing is recommended. Yeah, so bringing together, I guess, um, the the various different guidelines, I think we can see that um, next generation sequencing is the recommended method um, uh, that enables accurate and tissue efficient um, uh, testing for RET alterations and also other biomarkers, both in lung cancer and thyroid cancer. And this methodology allows detection of both RET point mutations as well as fusions. And I, I think as we heard, and I think Laurie made the point very nicely um, in thyroid cancer, molecular testing is the molecular testing of tissue is the preferred um, method um, for detecting RET uh, fusions or mutations. We have the similar issues in lung cancer in patients with intrathoracic disease that there can be sometimes um, a low frequency of detectable ctDNA in plasma, as is the case in, in thyroid cancer. And it's important to wait where we can for biomarker testing before making treatment recommendations because the results of the testing really do impact what treatment a patient um, receives um, in both situations, right, Laurie? Yeah, and you know, I think that that my key takeaway really is that because we have now such good RET-specific treatment options for patients with RET-driven cancers, we basically do not want to miss um, a RET alteration in a single patient. Whenever possible, we really want to identify every single patient that has RET-driven disease um, because we now have highly effective and, and very well-tolerated RET-targeted therapies. In this next module, we'll talk about the latest evidence on RET inhibitor therapy in lung cancer and how to best integrate these therapies into practice.
So initial attempts to target RET um, involved um, non-selective inhibitors of RET, um, such as vandetinib, alenvatinib, and cabozantinib. And these drugs tended to suffer from modest efficacy, certainly in comparison to other targeted agents such as EGFR inhibitors, ALK inhibitors, and ROS1 inhibitors, but also from um, significant toxicity. However, recently we've had um, development of selective, um, highly potent inhibitors uh, that inhibit RET with relatively little activity against other kinases. Two of these inhibitors, selpacatinib, which was, is also known as LOXO-292, and pralcetinib, which is also known as BLUE-667, um, have progressed through clinical trials. And we'll discuss some of the clinical trial data with these compounds, beginning with selpacatinib. So selpacatinib was um, uh, assessed in a large phase one trial called Libretto 001. And, um, and there was a large cohort of patients with non-small cell lung cancer that entered into, into this study. And we now have data um, from, from the non-small cell lung cancer cohorts, both in patients who had received prior treatment with platinum-based chemotherapy, which is standard, uh, standard therapy, and also in patients who are treatment naive. And we see, we see um, significant e efficacy in patients who had received prior, prior platinum uh, therapy, as you can see from the waterfall plot on the left. And the majority of patients have some reduction in tumor size. And 61% of these patients had reductions in size that met um, um, criteria for partial response, partial, um, uh, partial or complete responses. And with median, and these um, responses do seem to be durable. With a median follow-up of 15 months, 58% um, of responses were ongoing in this cohort. In the treatment-naive cohort, the objective response rate was 84%, and the majority of responses were ongoing at the time of um, uh, uh, at, um, at, 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 uh, with follow-up. What we've also seen is that um, uh, selpacatinib is active in the brain. In patients with measurable um, CNS disease, um, even in patients who had received um, multiple lines of prior treatment, not just with chemotherapy, but with other um, non-selective BRET inhibitors, there was reduction in tumor size with a CNS uh, objective response rate of 82%. Um, uh, seen in the Libretto uh, 001 study, including 23% of patients with uh, complete intracranial responses. These data have been recently updated, and with um, additional patients and additional follow-up, uh, the results do remain robust, with an objective response rate of 84% in treatment-naive patients um, and 61% in um, patients uh, who had received prior treatment. These responses um, do seem to be durable, with a median um, progression-free survival of 22 months in treatment-naive patients and 24.9 um, months in previously treated treated patients. And I think what's also really interesting is there is this uh, there there is a, um, it does appear that these drugs do seem to alter the natural history of disease with um, really unprecedented survivals being seen in this population. 
with three-year overall survival rates of 57% in the treatment-naive cohort uh, and similar rates in the platinum pre-treated cohort. Again, the CNS um, uh, data um, seems robust with an 84% objective intracranial response and a 26% uh, complete intracranial response. And treatment of brain metastases is, is, is really important in patients with lung cancer as many patients with lung cancer uh, present with brain metastases but also develop brain metastases over the course of their treatment. And brain metastases have a significant impact on, um, uh, on, on, on not just on morbidity and mortality but also a functional impact uh, on patients' quality of life. Now, in terms of toxicity, overall, um, selpicatinib uh, did seem to be um, tolerated well. Um, only 9.6% um, uh, of patients needed to discontinue treatment um, related to adverse events. So what sort of adverse events do we see? So we see some common adverse events such as uh, a dry mouth and edema, we also see some gastrointestinal um, uh, adverse events such as diarrhea or abdominal pain uh, and, L, but, and other adverse events um, of note include hypertension and alterations in um, liver function tests. Now, given, given the data from the, the phase one study um, showing efficacy in patients uh, receiving selpicatinib in the first line study, a phase three study called Libretto 431 was initiated to test selpicatinib compared to standard of care treatment in the first line setting in non-small cell lung cancer. And these results were reported at the ESMO 2023 meeting. So the rationale for the study was the strong first line, uh, the strong data in treatment naive patients in the Libretto 001 study. And the standard of care treatment for these um, patients uh, had previously been chemotherapy uh, with pembrolizumab. Now, um, so the, the Libretto 431 study was designed to test the efficacy of selpicatinib in the first line um, setting. So patients in this, uh, so, so it compared treatment with selpicatinib to standard of care treatment with, um, with um, chemotherapy with or without um, Pembrolizumab. The design of the study is shown here. Patients with newly diagnosed non-squamous, uh, non non-small cell lung cancer with a RET fusion identified via next-generation sequencing or PCR were randomized in a 2 to 1 ratio to treatment with selpicatinib given at a dose of 160 milligrams twice daily or to treatment with a cub uh, to chemotherapy plus pemetrexid with or without um, pembrolizumab. The stratification factors were based on uh, geography, brain metastases, and whether an investigator chose to give pembrolizumab or not. There was crossover in patients on the chemotherapy arm uh, who progressed, who had centrally confirmed progression, and these patients were allowed to receive selpicatinib on progression. The primary endpoint of the study was uh, progression-free survival by blinded independent central review, firstly in the intent to treat pembrolizumab population and also the entire study population. And key secondary endpoints included uh, objective response rate, 
and CNS activity, safety, and patient-reported outcomes. So these are the um, primary results of the study, and the, the study was positive for its primary endpoint of progression-free survival. So in the population of patients receiving pembrolizumab as part of um, uh, their control, um, uh, control arm, the hazard ratio was 0.46, the median progression-free survival with selpicatinib was 24.8 months compared to 11.2 months. So a really impressive um, uh, result. And of note, the control arm, the chemotherapy pembrolizumab arm, did um, uh, probably even a little bit better than we would expect by historical standards. And in the entire study population, the intent to treat population, very similar results were seen. A hazard ratio of 0.48, a median progression-free survival of 24.8 months with selpicatinib compared to 11.2 months um, with um, uh, chemotherapy with or without pembrolizumab. Now, when we look um, at the forest plot, we can see that benefit was seen pretty much across all the pre-specified subgroups. Um, benefit was seen regardless of um, ethnicity and in both patients with and without brain metastases. There didn't seem to be a differential effect based on uh, the type of ret fusion partner that was, was detected either. Now, in terms of objective response rate, so the overall response rate by RESIST criteria was higher um, uh, in the selpicatinib arm with an 83.7% um, objective response rate with selpicatinib compared to 65.1% with um, the chemotherapy uh, pembrolizumab arm. And these responses were durable with a median duration of response of 24 months with selpicatinib compared to 11 months uh, in the control arm. And the intracranial activity was consistent with what we saw in the phase one study an 82% intracranial objective response rate with selpicatinib um, compared to 58.3% um, intracranial response in the chemotherapy pembrolizumab arm. I will mention that this is a relatively small number of patients with, um, uh, with measurable disease, but, but the results were consistent with what had previously been seen speaking to the intracranial activity of, um, of selpicatinib. Another um, important um, uh, outcome um, from the study was uh, the effect of selpicatinib on CNS progression. As I mentioned previously, um, in non-small cell lung cancer patients, that there is a progressive development of brain metastases over time. And in the study, there, was, there were mandated CNS imaging. And um, from this, we were able to learn that uh, selpicatinib reduced um, the, the rate of CNS progression with a hazard ratio of 0.28 compared to, um, to chemotherapy and pembrolizumab, um, which, which is a really meaningful endpoint for patients. In terms of toxicities, um, the most frequently observed toxicities were elevations of the transaminases, AST and ALT, um, also, hypertension, diarrhea, edema, and uh, dry mouth, again, consistent um, with, uh, with what was seen in the phase one study. The toxicities from chemotherapy are what we expect in terms of myelosuppression 
um, uh, being the main uh, and gastrointestinal toxicity has been the main um, toxicities. In terms of patient reported outcomes, um, selpicatinib uh, resulted in an improvement in the time to uh, in, in uh, patient reported pulmonary symptoms and uh, physical function um, and, and delayed the time to deterioration of these uh, these measures. So I think at the, the Libretto 431 study was an important study which really um, firmly establishes selpicatinib as the optimal first-line therapy for a newly diagnosed patient with um, red rearranged lung cancer. And these results really do reinforce the importance of upfront and early genomic testing to identify red fusions at the time of diagnosis um, to guide and inform um, optimal first-line therapy, which if you identify a red fusion, is treatment with the selective red inhibitor. And um, for more information, the results from the study were published simultaneously with the ESMO presentation in the New England Journal uh, of Medicine. So that we also have um, uh, quite similar data from another selective red inhibitor, pralcetinib, um, which like selpicatinib is highly potent against um, RET with relatively little activity against other kinases. This compound was evaluated in a phase one, two study called the ARROW study, and very similar to um, the results with selpicatinib um, in the non-small cell lung cancer cohort patients, both um, who had received prior, prior platinum-based chemotherapy and patients who were treatment naive um, were evaluated. In the patients who had received prior platinum-based chemotherapy, the objective response rate was 62%. In patients who had received, um, uh, uh, so in patients who were newly diagnosed and treatment naive, the objective response rate was a bit higher at 79%. Toxicities with this compound um, have some overlap um, with, um, with, with selpicatinib. Uh, with some slight differences as, as well. So um, again, elevations of transaminases were seen as well as hypertension. There was that, but in addition to that, there were some um, hematological findings with neutropenia and anemia um, also being frequently frequently observed. One um, other important aspect of, um, uh, of, of both studies was that both um, phase one studies included cohorts of patients who had red fusions identified um, in different histologies. These are, again, these are results now shown with the selpicatinib study in patients with um, a range of um, tumor histologies, but all of which had red fusions. And as you can see from the waterfall plot, responses were seen regardless of tumor histology, um, indicating that really it, was, it, it is the presence of the RET fusion that drives the biology. And regardless of the histology, if you're able to identify a RET fusion, um, treatment with a RET inhibitor is likely to uh, result in best outcomes. And on the basis of these results, um, in September of 2022, the FDA approved um, selpicatinib 
for patients with um, uh, RET gene fusions that had progressed on prior systemic um, treatment, regardless of histology, a so-called tissue agnostic um, approval. We also have very similar data with um, pralcetinib, with responses seen across a range of different histologies. Um, this waterfall, and that's shown nicely in this waterfall plot, where different histologies are shown with different colored bars, and we see that um, again, it's not the <clears throat> tumor type, but the presence of the the fusion that uh, drives the um, uh, drives the efficacy of, of these agents, and and therefore benefit to patients. So, in summary. Red gene rearrangements or red fusions are found in 1% to 2% of um, non-small cell lung cancers. Testing, ideally with next-generation sequencing, is required to identify these fusions. Selective RET inhibitors such as selpicatinib and pralcetinib are highly active and have activity in the, the brain. And we see the best results um, when used early, and we have results from the, the first phase three study with a RET inhibitor in the first line setting, the Libretto 431 study, which really does establish upfront treatment with selpicatinib as the optimal first line therapy for a patient with newly diagnosed RET rearranged lung cancer. So in terms of illustrating practical considerations um, related to um, treatment with RET inhibitors, um, I think it's useful to look at a, a case um, a, a, a case presentation of a patient with a red rearranged lung cancer. Uh, uh, this is a case of a young man we saw in our practice um, who was um, uh, who, who is a 37 year old man who had um, had a light smoking history, who presented with rapidly progressing disease in his lung. Um, but also with brain metastases uh, as well as soft tissue metastases. It's standard of care molecular testing, which um, which involved EGFR testing, KRAS, BRAF, MET testing, as well as ALK and ROS1 FISH testing. Um, and his PDL1 was 40%. So this was um, the standard panel that we were using at that time, which, as you know, didn't, did not include um, uh, RET uh, FISH or um, uh, next-generation sequencing. We did request um, next-generation sequencing but did not have results available in time to start therapy. Um, so because of the clinical urgency of the situation, he commenced therapy with carboplatin and pemetrexid chemotherapy together with pembrolizumab. Unfortunately, had very rapid progression after two cycles of therapy. Fortunately, um, next-generation sequencing using a DNA and RNA-based um, panel was performed, including a platform um, called TSO500. This is a multi-gene platform uh, which tests over 500 different genes, but also has um, an RNA component um, uh, which um, provides a very sensitive mechanism to look for fusions, including RET. So when we got the result back, we were um, we were pleased that we were able to identify a KIF5B RET fusion um, uh, that, that was identified. 
So on the basis of, of this result and the finding of the KIF-5B through next generation sequencing, um, uh, the patient was um, able to commence treatment with a selective RET inhibitor, um, selpicatinib, and had um, a dramatic uh, response, both radiologically, as you can see, with a um, dramatic reduction in um, size of his lung mass, but more importantly, a dramatic um, and durable clinical response to therapy. In the next module, we will talk about the latest evidence on RET inhibitor therapy and thyroid cancer and how to best integrate these therapies into practice. All right, let's focus on the evidence. So we do now have the uh, first-generation RET-specific inhibitors um, that have been studied in clinical trials and are now available in, in clinic. Um, prior to the development of the highly selective RET inhibitors, we did have multi-kinase uh, uh, inhibitors that did have anti-RET activity, particularly cabozatinib, vandetinib, and lenvatinib that inhibited the RET kinase, but other uh, kinases as well, including VEGFR2, where we think that some of the toxicity from these older TKIs uh, was derived. And now we do have two highly potent and specific RET inhibitors, namely selpercatinib, uh, previously referred to as LOXO292, and prilosatinib, previously referred to as BLU667. So let's go over the initial selpercatinib phase 1-2 data in patients with red-activated thyroid cancers, as was uh, demonstrated in Libretto 001. There were a couple of thyroid cancer patient populations that were enrolled. We enrolled patients with retfusion-positive uh, follicular-derived thyroid cancer, namely differentiated thyroid cancer, but there were a couple of patients enrolled also who had retfusion-positive anaplastic thyroid cancer. And we now have updated uh, uh, data on 65 uh, uh, patients with retfusion-positive thyroid cancer from the Libretto 001 trial. We took a look at patients um, with retfusion-positive thyroid cancer who were treatment-naive, and then um, patients that had received a prior TKI therapy. And in the treatment-naive patient population with retfusion-positive thyroid cancer, we saw an objective response rate by the blinded um, independent committee review of almost 96%. Um, and for the patients that had received prior TKI therapy, um, the objective response rate was 85%. These responses are really quite durable. The median progression-free survival had not yet been reached at the time of, of uh, uh, data cutoff in the patients that were treatment naive, and it was 27 months in the patients that had received a prior therapy. We also saw long um, durations of response in this patient population as well. In terms of the safety in patients with retfusion-positive thyroid cancer, the safety profile was very similar to um, the overall safety profile for all patients in Libretto 001. Um, the, there were two patients in this uh, uh, group of patients who discontinued treatment due to treatment emergent adverse events for a discontinuation rate of only 3%. Um, most of the adverse events that were seen were grades 1 or grade 2 that were treatment-related. Um, and the most common uh, treatment-related adverse events included uh, diarrhea, dry mouth, hypertension, 
fatigue, um, and other uh, adverse events were seen as well. Here we see the waterfall plot for patients um, uh, who um, were treated with uh, selprocatinib on Libretto 001 with the retfusion positive thyroid cancer. Um, the um, waterfall plots show that every patient who was enrolled did have some degree of tumor shrinkage, and um, the majority of patients um, did have objective res responses. And you can see in the Kaplan-Meier curve that the progression-free survival is really quite long, and the median progression-free survival was not, has not yet been met. In the patients with retfusion-positive thyroid cancer who had been previously treated, we um, again see in the waterfall plot very high objective response rates, um, with most patients achieving um, at least at least a partial response. I'll also point out that we see a pretty high rate of complete responses in these patients, um, as you can see in the waterfall plot, um, with those bars going all the way down to zero to the right of that waterfall plot. And in the patients with previously treated ret fusion positive thyroid cancer, um, the median. Uh, progression-free survival um, is quite durable and um, was uh, 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 defined by the Kaplan-Meier curves at 27 months. Now, Libretto 001 also enrolled a large cohort of RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer patients. Um, uh, overall, in the updated presentation, we've reported now on 324 patients with RET-mutant medullary thyroid cancer. Let me show you those data. In terms of the patients with RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer, we took a look at three different patient cohorts. Um, we looked at patients uh, who were entirely treatment-naive and had not received any prior TKI therapy. There were 116 treatment-naive RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer patients. We also took a look at patients that had not received any prior vandatinib or cabozatinib, um, both of which are approved for medullary thyroid cancer. There were 143 cabozatinib and vandatinib-naive patients with medullary thyroid cancer enrolled in Libretto 001. And then there was a cohort of patients with medullary thyroid cancer who had received either previous cabozatinib, vandatinib, or both, and there were 152 of those patients. In terms of the treatment-naive patients with medullary thyroid cancer, the objective response rate by independent review was close to 85%. In those patients that had re that were cabozatinib and vandatinib-naive, the objective response rate was close to 83%. And in those patients that um, had received prior cabozatinib and or vandatinib, the objective response rate was um, still quite high at almost 78%. Again, we're seeing very durable responses in the patients with medullary thyroid cancer in Libretto 001. Um, the median progression-free survival in the treatment-naive patients ha has not yet been reached um, um, after quite a long period of follow-up at this point in time. Um, in those patients um, who were cabozatinib and vandatinib naive, also uh, median progression-free survival has not yet been met. And then in the patients that had received prior cabozatinib and or vandetinib, Still, we see quite uh, durable responses with a median progression-free survival um, in that patient population of 41 months. Now, in Libretto 001, the safety in the patients with mutated medullary thyroid cancer was very similar to the overall safety 
uh, 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 population for the entire uh, trial. There were um, 9% of patients who discontinued treatment due to treatment emergent adverse events, and 5% of these were considered treatment-related. The most common grade three or higher uh, 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 adverse events that were experienced included diarrhea, hypertension, fatigue, and transaminitis. I will mention um, for the sake of being complete and for safety's sake, um, we do see uncommonly QTC prolongation, so it is important to follow EKGs in patients prior to um, and after initiating sulpercatinib therapy. Now in Libretto 001, for patients with uh, the treatment-naive RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer, I just want to show here the uh, really beautiful uh, waterfall plots um, showing the best overall response rates. Uh, most patients um, are achieving a response, and we're seeing high rates of complete responses as well as the uh, waterfall plots do demonstrate. And um, the median progression-free survival has not yet been re reached <coughs> in this patient population, as the Kaplan-Meier curve shows. And here we see the waterfall plots for patients who were cabozatinib and vandatinib naive with RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer, and very similar to the waterfall plot for the patients that were entirely treatment naive. And again, long progression-free survival with the median not yet being reached. And here we see the waterfall plots for the patients who had received prior cabozatinib and or vandatinib with RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer in Libretto 001, um, with a majority of patients um, achieving at least a partial response. But even in this previously treated patient population, we're seeing a pretty high rate of complete responses. Now, let me share with you the data recently presented at ESMO in 2023, investigating selpercatinib compared to cabozatinib or vandatinib in a phase three trial in uh, RET-mutated treatment-naive medullary thyroid cancer patients. And this uh, data was presented by Julianne Hedu. The background for the trial, of course, was the beautiful data that was seen in Libretto 001 um, with selpercatinib, um, whereas with um, the um, previously established standards of care, namely cabozatinib and vandetinib, the exam and Zeta trials respectively showed that both of these drugs compared to placebo do improve um, uh, progression-free survival for patients with advanced medullary thyroid cancer, and both were approved as first-line treatment for these patients. The limitations of these drugs, however, um, probably are derived from suboptimal RET inhibition and from toxicity of the multikinase inhibitors with long pharmacologic half-lives that can complicate the management of patients on these therapies. And whereas with selpercatinib in Libretto 001, the phase 1-2 trial, we found that selpercatinib, of course, designed as the highly potent and specific RET inhibitor, um, there we saw really compelling activity um, with um, in patients with RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer in terms of high response rates, long progression-free survival, um, and very good tolerability. So Libretto 531 was designed to compare um, the selpercatinib uh, 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 in the first line for patients with RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer uh, to cabozatinib 
or vandetinib per physician's choice in order to establish the optimal first-line regimen for these patients. Here we see the schema for Libretto 531, um, in which patients with uh, locally advanced unresectable and or metastatic RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer who are treatment naive and had disease progression within 14 months of study entry um, and harbored a RET mutation, either identified by NGS or PCR, were enrolled and randomized in a two-to-one fashion to selpercatinib versus physician's choice cabozatinib or vandetinib at their um, approved uh, doses. Selpercatinib was administered at 160 milligrams BID, which is the recommended phase two dose established by Libretto 001. There were 193 patients randomized to selpercatinib and 98 patients randomized to physician's choice standard of care therapy. I'll note that um, the um, uh, design did not incorporate blinding, um, which was approved by healthcare uh, regulatory agencies um, because it was felt that it would be quite obvious to both physicians and patients which um, arm the uh, patients were randomized to. When patients um, did have confirmed a disease progression on cabozatinib or vandetinib, they were allowed um, crossover to selpercatinib. The primary endpoint of the trial was progression-free survival per RESIST 1.1 by blinded independent review. And the key secondary endpoints included treatment failure-free survival by blinded independent review, PFS, uh, objective response, overall uh, survival, and safety. Um, here we see the top-line results in terms of the uh, progression-free survival, the hazard ratio for progression-free survival, indicating selpercatinib's benefit over cabozatinib or vendetinib was uh, 0.280. So the improvement in progression-free survival is highly statistically significant. The median PFS was not yet reached with selpercatinib, whereas with the standard of care arm, the median PFS was 16.8 months. Um, so selpercatinib demonstrated a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival. And that progression-free survival was observed in all subgroups, as the forest plot here shows. Um, so whether patients um, harbored that RET M918T mutation or not, for example, um, there was benefit with selpercatinib. And we also saw benefit whether the patients had um, been randomized to either cabozat or uh, I'm sorry, had been randomized to the standard of care arm and had physician's choice cabozatinib or vandetinib. And here we see the Kaplan-Meier curves for treatment failure-free survival. Um, this was assessed by blinded independent review. And let me just go over the definition because this was a novel um, uh, secondary endpoint that was incorporated into the study. And TFFS was, was defined as the time from randomization to the first occurrence of either progressive disease or discontinuation of treatment due to treatment-related adverse events that was um, reviewed centrally by blinded review or death. And you can see um, that um, there was, a, again, a statistically significant improvement in TFS with selpercatinib as compared to cabozatinib, and that hazard ratio is 0.254, which we might have expected thinking about the hazard ratio for PFS uh, uh, being 0.28. 
Um, the median TFFS for selpercatinib has not yet been reached, whereas it was um, almost 14 months with the standard of, of care arm. So uh, selpercatinib demonstrated a statistically significant improvement in treatment failure-free survival as well as progression-free survival. In terms of the objective response rates, um, the objective response rate with selpercatinib was 69% whereas it was 38.8% uh, with cabozatinib or vandetinib in the standard of care arm. In terms of complete responses, we saw 11.9% uh, of patients achieving a complete response with selpercatinib and 4.1% uh, of patients achieving a complete response with cabozatinib um, or vandetinib. And the median duration of response was not yet reached with selpercatinib, where, whereas it was 16.6 months um, in the standard of care arm. And here we see the uh, waterfall plots for selpercatinib juxtaposed to those of cabozatinib or vandetinib um, with a, a, a higher percentage of patients um, achieving a, a response um, uh, with selpercatinib um, as demonstrated here um, by these waterfall plots, including patients um, achieving a complete response rate uh, with selpercatinib um, and more patients than the uh, patients that had achieved a complete response rate uh, or a complete response with cabozatinib or vandetinib. Now, the um, overall survival was presented at ESMO as well, um, and um, there was a separation of the curves, although I'll note that this is really the um, survival events were in a small number of patients, and more follow-up is really needed for us to know um, uh, uh, if there is indeed an overall survival benefit with selpercatinib um, from the Libretto 531 trial. The safety of selpercatinib compared to cabozatinib or vandetinib is shown here. Um, I think um, you can appreciate in that tornado plot um, that um, the frequency of adverse events um, seems less with selpercatinib compared to the standard of care therapy, um, as well as the uh, grade of adverse events. So the light um, blue and gray bars um, show uh, grade one and two adverse events, whereas the darker blue and gray um, part, parts of the bars show grade three or higher adverse events. So with selpercatinib, hypertension, dry mouth, transaminitis, and diarrhea were the most frequent adverse events noted, whereas with cabozatinib or vandetinib, the most common adverse events included diarrhea, hypertension, transaminitis, but we saw other adverse events as well, including some GI toxicity, nausea and vomiting, and then also hand-foot syndrome. Uh, for salpercatinib, um, uh, there were um, uh, permanent discontinuations um, of salpercatinib in 4.7% of patients, whereas with cabozatinib or vandetinib, um, the permanent discontinuation was 26.8% of patients. So to conclude uh, regarding Libretto 531, selpercatinib is an active um, and selective RET inhibitor um, that showed superior efficacy uh, compared to cabozatinib or vandetinib in first-line patients with RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer with a significant improvement in progression-free survival, treatment failure-free survival, with hazard ratios of 0.28 and 0.254 respectively. Selpercatinib also showed a fa favorable safety profile compared with the multikinase inhibitors. 
And the adverse events that were seen um, attributed to sulpercatinib were similar to what had been seen previously in the Libretto 001 trial. I think that these uh, results absolutely highlight the importance of, of RET selectivity um, in patients with RET uh, mutated medullary thyroid cancer um, and highlight um, the timely implementation of, of biomarker testing um, in patients with, with medullary thyroid cancer who are going to be needing systemic therapy. And the Libretto 531 results do support selpercatinib as the first-line standard of care for patients with advanced RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer. The Libretto 531 trial um, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine simultaneously with the ESMO 2023 presentation. Now let me touch uh, upon pralcetinib and, and thyroid cancer briefly. As I mentioned earlier, um, uh, uh, pralcetinib um, did initially garner an accelerated approval uh, for um, uh, the treatment of patients with RET-mutated progressive medullary thyroid cancer based on um, data from the ARO trial in which um, there were several thyroid cancer cohorts enrolled, including RET-mutated medullary thyroid cancer as well as RET-fusion-positive thyroid cancer. Um, the um, uh, application for accelerated approval was, however, withdrawn um, for medullary thyroid cancer um, when a confirmatory phase three trial was not performed. Um, so I just want to highlight um, the um, pralcetinib data in RET fusion positive thyroid cancer, um, which has retained an accelerated approval uh, 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 for this patient population in the United States. Now, in patients with RET fusion positive thyroid cancer enrolled in the ARO trial treated with pralcetinib, the objective response rate was 90.9%. And in those patients with RET fusion positive thyroid cancer, uh, the median progression-free survival was 25.4 months. The safety of pralcetinib in the thyroid cancer population was similar to the safety uh, profile of pralcetinib um, in the overall uh, uh, ARO trial population. PROs were also studied and uh, remained um, uh, improved or stable in the patients um, with thyroid cancer that were enrolled um, um, in the ARO trial and treated with prosetinib. All right, let's talk about practical considerations for real-world practice uh, with uh, uh, RET inhibitor therapy in patients with thyroid cancer. And I want to share a case uh, with you of a patient of mine um, with sporadic medullary thyroid cancer uh, diagnosed in 2014. He was 47 years old at the time. Uh, his uh, diagnosis was identified preoperatively and his uh, calcitonin and CEA tumor markers were evaluated preoperatively. They were quite high, uh, 32,000 and, and 1,200 respectively, uh, suggesting that this patient um, was at a high risk for harboring uh, distant metastases. Nonetheless, he appropriately underwent a total thyroidectomy and was found to have a medullary thyroid cancer um, that was relatively small with extrathyroidal extension um, however, 11 of 11 cervical nodes were positive, the largest of which was 2.5 centimeters in size. 
Um, he shortly thereafter underwent a revision neck surgery um, and uh, further nodal disease uh, was resected, including very bulky disease with a 4.2 centimeter uh, posterior right cervical node that showed extranodal extension and other nodes were positive as well. The patient was appropriately tested for germline RET mutation and was found to be wild type and therefore did not harbor uh, MEN2A or MEN2B. Um, two years later, uh, he had rising uh, uh, tumor markers. Uh, his calcitonin levels had gone up to 26,000 in CEA, which had gone down after surgery, was back up to 115. Um, a PET CT was done um, showing very extensive bulky um, disease in the bilateral neck and mediastinum. Um, he was started at that time on cabozatinib at the FDA approved a dose of 140 milligrams daily. We also did tumor NGS testing at the time, and uh, this uh, tumor was found to harbor uh, a somatic uh, RET deletion, as you can see um, notate, notated here in the slide. Um, he had a beautiful response initially to cabozatinib. Um, his uh, uh, restaging imaging showed um, a, a a decrease in the bulky um, disease that was present in the neck as well as in the bulky mediastinal disease. Um, the cabozatinib had to be held briefly when the patient was diagnosed with immune um, thrombocytopenia. Um, and then unfortunately, the patient was lost to follow-up. Um, he did stop cabozatinib in October of 2018 due to losing his healthcare insurance. Um, however, he represented to our clinic in February of uh, 2019 um, because of an increasing um, large right neck mass. Um, his tumor markers um, had gone up again uh, with a calcitonin level of more than 25,000 and CEA of 656. And um, CT imaging showed massive disease progression in the neck and in the mediastinum. He was enrolled um, as soon as we could on Libretto 531 and started um, sulpercatinib at the recommended FDA approved dose of 160 milligrams BID um, in the beginning of, or in the, in the middle of February of 2019. On sulpercatinib, the patient reported to us that his neck mass seemed um, noticeably smaller um, even um, by day eight of treatment. Um, he had diarrhea that was grade one at baseline, um, and the diarrhea very quickly resolved. Patients with medullary thyroid cancer who have high calcitonin levels have calcitonin-mediated diarrhea. So when the calcitonin levels go down, we often see significant improvement in diarrhea, which I think makes a big difference for these patients' quality of life. He developed a grade one rash on sulpercatinib that was treated symptomatically. He had grade one uh, fatigue at presentation, and that resolved. His appetite normalized, and he actually started gaining weight after starting sulpercatinib. You can see here his uh, graphing of his tumor markers. Um, the calcitonin and CEA levels uh, dropped quite briskly, particularly the calcitonin level uh, dropped uh, to within the normal range uh, very shortly after initiating therapy. And you can see here in the CT scans that, again, there was a dramatic um, decrease in the uh, bulky disease in the patient's neck as well as in the mediastinum. Um, I show here the um, resist uh, 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 response um, that was 
taken after he had been on study for approximately 14 months um, as a snapshot of his response. I mean, at that point, he had almost a 70% decrease uh, in the sum of his longest diameters based on uh, uh, based on resist version 1.1. This patient remained on sulpercatinib. However, he did unfortunately experience disease progression after 36 months of treatment. Um, he developed oligoprogression in the left mediastinum only, as you can see here in that uh, node highlighted on the CT scan. Um, we did do an endobronchial biopsy of this lesion. It was confirmed to be medullary thyroid cancer, and we did NGS testing looking for the mechanism of acquired resistance, and we identified an acquired KRAS-G13A mutation. That, of course, was not actionable. Um, the patient remained on, on study. We held sulpercatinib. He received radiation therapy to the mediastinum, and then he resumed sulpercatinib. And he can, I can um, happily report that he remains on the Libretto 001 study to date. Um, he, um, um, apart from that one side of oligoprogressive disease, um, uh, he remains in response elsewhere. And at the time of his last follow-up, in terms of his imaging in March of 2023, um, he um, uh, remains in response radiographically, except for the one side of disease progression. And you can see his calcitonin and CEA tumor markers remain quite low um, on sulpercatinib. In the final module, we will talk about the importance of multidisciplinary collaboration as well as patient education and engagement in care decisions to improve biomarker testing and treatment outcomes in RET-altered cancers. Yeah, so, so I think uh, we really are in the era of precision medicine for, for both lung cancer and thyroid cancer. And and precision medicine is about getting the right drug to the right patient at the right time. And in the context of lung cancer um, with uh, harboring re rearrangements, it's really about making sure patients get identified, uh, get their tumors tested. And if the tumors um, are found to have RET gene rearrangements, making sure that they get a RET inhibitor as early as possible. And what we know is that uh, a multidisciplinary approach is critical to doing this, and uh, which is not reliant on just one practitioner, the medical oncologist, but really the entire team um, that, uh, that is involved with the patient right from the time of their diagnosis. So the critical first step is making sure that there's enough tissue. And this involves making sure that we do biopsies, um, um, that um, that not just cytology is collected, but adequate tissue to perform molecular testing, not just for um, uh, one gene or sequential testing of multiple genes, but really we need to think about uh, getting um, getting adequate tissue to allow testing for all the um, potentially actionable targets, which in the context of lung cancer, uh, maybe up to 10 different um, oncogene targets at the moment. So adequate tissue is, is, is important. There are situations where we even have to consider re-biopsy if there isn't sufficient tissue on the initial testing. Then I think it's important also to, and, and this involves working closely with our interventional radiologists, our pulmonologists, um, our surgeons, but also it's important to work closely with um, with 
the pathology department and molecular t- uh, pathologists to ensure adequate processing of tissue um, to allow efficient interrogation of that tissue and to make sure that um, uh, molecular testing is, is, is prioritized. Then I think it's also important to, um, to be aware of um, the importance of, of testing uh, in dictating first-line treatment and really work towards minimizing turnaround times from when the test is um, uh, test is requested to when it's done. So part of that involves ordering the test early, ideally through reflex testing done by a pathologist, um, and really working very hard to make sure that um, we have results at uh, prior to initiation of, of first-line therapy. In other situations, it may be important if we don't have enough tissue to consider things such as a liquid biopsy. And in patients who have recurrence from prior surgery, um, as um, as Dr. Worth, I'm sure, will discuss in the context of thyroid cancer, testing archival tissue may be, may be helpful for doing this. But I think really what this speaks to is the importance of a coordinated multidisciplinary approach, making sure that testing happens, that it happens early, and that it informs um, op, uh, initial therapy. And uh, Dr. Wirth, I think um, it's a very similar situation in thyroid cancer. It is. And, you know, um, I think what's really key here is communication. There's not one specific algorithm that will work in every institution um, around the country and around the world, but communicating with the key players um, um, in order to so that your surgeon or your interventional pulmonologist knows that you need tissue for molecular testing, and then knowing what um, the best assay is um, for that particular disease setting um, that's available uh, in your particular institution is is also key. So asking the right questions of the right people is really, I think. Um, critical, and you know, I would add to your the um, right um, uh, drug for the right patient at the right time. Um, we can maybe start out by saying the right test for the right patient to identify the right drug at the right time. Um, the testing is is getting the testing done well um, really is the key to identifying every single patient. Um, now, you know, with thyroid cancer, uh, many patients do have um, a relatively indolent uh, uh, natural history of disease where they may have had original thyroid cancer surgery done a number of years earlier. Um, that um, tissue um, can often be used for testing because we're looking for driver alterations that are present um, in the original cancer as well as in the progressive metastatic disease. And um, in these days, we're often able to extract good DNA and RNA from those archival specimens for NGS testing. Yeah, and I, I might just sort of add to your your um, point. One one other thing you you, t- you sort of talked about the the difference in natural history that patients um, may not need to have therapy straight away. In lung cancer, it's a little bit different that um, patients with metastatic disease really need to start early, but. We do have patients who've um, started therapy and and even have done well on therapy, but progress. And then when we look back, they've never actually been tested for for RET. And it's important to 
to remember that. And like you said, you need to do the right test. If you don't do the right test, you don't find it and go back and make sure that we um, we test for that situation, uh, test um, test for RET and other actionable oncogenes that they may not have been initially tested for. That's a, that's a very good point. Uh, again, in, in, in the interest in not missing a single patient who's out there who might benefit from treatment. Um, you know, another thing that is unique to thyroid, the thyroid cancer space is um, the need to, uh, for medullary thyroid cancer to really be thinking about two different types of tests. Um, we n- do need to rule out germline rep mutations in, in any patient who's diagnosed with medullary thyroid cancer. Um, but in patients um, who um, are either RET wild type from a germline point of view or are uh, germline unknown, um, we do want to do uh, tissue testing um, looking for somatic RET mutations because a majority of patients with, som- with non-inherited medullary thyroid cancer um, with- will harbor uh, somatic RET mutations. And, and I think another important um, aspect of this is involving the, the patients. So in the, in the context of lung cancer, I, I think um, when a patient has a new diagnosis of lung cancer, they're, they're really overwhelmed by um, the diagnosis about the information uh, that's associated with that, and, and there's a lot to, to process. And, it's, um, and in this context... Um, I think there are some important things that we as physicians and, and um, nurse, um, nurse consultants or nurse practitioners can do as well. But I think there's also an important role um, that um, patient um, support groups and patient advocacy groups have um, in really uh, providing information to patients, letting them know that they're not alone on this journey, that there are other people in very similar situations. In in, in the context of lung cancer, they're, they're fantastic patient groups and they're different groups in different countries. In in the US, in the context of RET rearranged lung cancer, there's a group called the RET Renegades, um, which really has sort of a focused um, uh, uh, or, or provided really strong advocacy um, um, for, for RET testing, for, um, for a- access to, to RET inhibitors. And I think that's... Um, that's really important. And, and I think there's a similar situation in the context of thyroid cancer. There, there is definitely. So, um, I, you know, I think that the, the role of, of patient education and involving patients in these really critical treatment decisions um, is so helpful. Uh, you know, patients um, um, are indeed often overwhelmed and, and um, we are guilty of information overload uh, uh, all the time in, in clinic. Um, so, you know, circling back and, and, uh, reviewing the information, um, with patients, um, again, for a second time or for a third time, um, can really help patients understand what it is that, that we started talking about in our first visit. Uh, and they couldn't remember because everything else was, um, swirling around, uh, for them. Um, there are patient advocacy groups, uh, uh, specific to, Th- thyroid cancer, um, the um, uh, patient advocacy group called Thyca um, is um, uh, one uh, of the larger patient advocacy groups, and they do have a worldwide presence, um, and they also have um, RET groups within um, uh, the overall Thyca organization. 
And, you know, one of the things that I think we hope is that um, with better patient um, uh, education, better patient advocacy, that we'll be seeing increasing rates of testing um, for these actionable alterations for patients with lung cancer, um, as well as for our patients with thyroid cancer. Um, we need to get a lot closer to 100% of patients being tested around the world. And um, and the more that patients can partner with us uh, in achieving those higher rates of, of testing, um, um, the faster we'll get there. And, you know, I have to say that um, for most patients that that are referred to me at this point in time, patients have never even heard of uh, molecular testing or biomarker testing or NGS testing, and it's it's really only come up the in their first meeting with me. Um, so there's a lot of room for education out there. Yeah, I I completely agree. I, I think um, I, I think it's it's fantastic to have guidelines, but the real work is implementing in these guidelines. And I think I, I love the way you sort of um, phrased, um, I, th I think you used the expression to really make sure that we don't leave any patient behind that has an actionable um, alterations. And we know that globally, um, we we don't get to, globally, we do um, leave patients behind that 50% um, that gap in, in testing and and I think even bigger uh, gaps in access are really something that we need to work together. And it's really um, by working together with our colleagues, with patients, um, that uh, we'll be able to do this. Yes. And, uh, you know, one other advocacy group that I think we absolutely want to mention is the RET Positive uh, group. This is another patient advocacy group that is um, specifically focused on uh uh, patients with cancers that uh, that harbor uh, activating red alterations. They're doing fantastic work in this space as well. Absolutely. And in the context of lung cancer is uh, the, exactly the same. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ANR860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.